Well, hello again, FAC family. Pastor Mike here. It's uh, good to be with you again. If you've got a Bible nearby, uh, why don't you join me in Acts chapter 10? We'll be reading verses 1 through 33 this morning. Uh, Once again, that's Acts chapter 10. Uh, I'll start reading just from verse 1. Go ahead and follow along with me as I read out loud. It says this. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, A devout man who feared God with all his household gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius, and he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter, he is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose uh, house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop uh, about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask where Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. The next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea, Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. And Cornelius said, Four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. 
Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as your word says, you search us and you know us. You've formed us and knew us well before we were even born. And so, Father, as we come to you and seek you for wisdom and guidance in our life, we would ask that you continue to search us so that we may not know ourselves and so that we may know of our desperate need for you and your word. Bless our time together and let your spirit penetrate our hearts and minds today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This is possibly one of the strangest passages of Acts that we've come across uh, so far as it pertains to this vision that Peter has. Here you have Peter falling into a trance and then seeing this giant sheet uh, descend from heaven with a whole zoo of animals on it. And the stranger thing is, is that the vision is never directly explained. If you were to pick up the Bible for the very first time and read Acts chapter 10 without any prior knowledge of what the context of the story is, you'd probably think that this is just a very strange and weird story. It's a reminder that whenever we approach Scripture, we have to remember that this was written by real people from a a real culture, and it was written in a culture and a context that is dramatically different than our own. And so whenever you sit down to study Scripture, we must understand what these passages mean in their original context, in their original culture, before we can pull out any kind of application for us here in the year 2020. We should always get to application, but it could take some time. I fear that sometimes when we approach Scripture, we have the temptation to jump straight to application. We say, well, forget all of that other stuff. Just tell me what I need to know for today. Let's, get, let's move along with it, right? Just tell me what I need to do today. Uh, we do this because it's easy, right? Or uh, perhaps we're a little bit lazy when it comes to uh, digging a little bit deeper. But I want to warn you that this is dangerous. It's dangerous and it can lead us to places in interpreting Scripture that we shouldn't go. When we rush to application, one of two things generally happens. We either misinterpret the passage altogether or we miss a gold mine of wealth, of wisdom and understanding because we're much too satisfied with a shiny penny that we've been distracted too off to the side. And so as we approach this story today, this very strange story, just bear with me. Bear with me as I try to explain the culture and the context of this passage. In order to understand this story, we're going to have to talk about the Jewish food laws in Leviticus. Now you hear that and you might say, oh, geez, how boring is this going to be, Mike? This is going to be a real page turner, huh? Uh, like, what do the Levitical food laws have to do with me thousands of years later? What's the point? Like I said, bear with me. We'll get there. And for starters, let me just say that if you're a believer 
and you love bacon as much as I do, you can actually thank Acts chapter 10. And well, if you don't like bacon or love bacon, uh, I'll pray for you. As we identify the context, I want to start in this first verse. We're introduced to a new character named Cornelius. Cornelius is a devout man. He fears God. He prays. He gives alms or he donates essentially to the needy. Um, Now he wasn't Jewish, but he's what we would call a Jewish sympathizer. We also learn that he's a Roman centurion. As a centurion, Cornelius would have had oversight of about a hundred soldiers in a military unit. His responsibilities would have been that of like a modern day army captain. Uh, One commentator, just so you know what Cornelius was like, one commentator says that centurions were to be uh, men who were good leaders of steady and prudent mind. Um, The most important thing to understand in these first verses is that Cornelius is from the city of Caesarea. Caesarea was named after the Roman emperor Caesar Augustus, and it even had a temple uh, dedicated to his worship within the city limits. As one writer puts it, the city served as a showpiece for Roman culture. It was an extremely important city administratively for Rome. And because of this, the Jewish people, like Peter, hated the city of Caesarea. Now, the city is in the province of Judea, but it actually had more Gentiles living in the city than Jews. Now, you might not be familiar with those terms. Once again, as a reminder that when Scripture uses the term Gentiles or Gentile, it means it's referring to somebody who is not Jewish. The Jewish people were separated from the rest of the world by God. And from where they were sitting, you were either Jewish or you weren't. You were either Jewish or you were a Gentile. And from the Jewish perspective, if you were a Gentile, that meant that you were a pagan, that you didn't know the one true God. You see, for the Jewish people, there is a very strong sense of national identity among them. Cornelius is a Gentile. And so it's very interesting in these opening verses uh, that an angel of God would come to Cornelius and specifically ask him to send for a Jewish man named Peter. Uh, From this, we can see that God is up to something, right? He's orchestrating uh, something. As one looks at a chessboard and strategizes the next move, we see God putting the pieces in place to execute his will. And as God is setting up the pieces with Cornelius and Caesarea, the the scene actually in verse 9 shifts once again uh, to another place and in another setting with another person. And and we see God continually continually carefully putting the pieces in, in place. We're brought to a rooftop where Peter is praying in what's been called the sixth hour. Now, they counted time a little differently back then. This would have been the sixth hour from sunrise. So it's about noon. 
And when he, when he's praying at noon, this is not a typical time of prayer for the Jewish people. They would typically pray at nine in the morning, our time, or, or three p.m. in the afternoon. But Peter is kind of going off script a little bit. He, he's really, it seems like he's just showing how devout, devoutly religious he is. And he's praying at noon. He's showing off how holy is, how holy he is. Now, while noon isn't typically a prayer time, it is and was a time of eating. So, of course, while Peter is praying, he grows hungry. The stomach starts to grumble. And you're familiar with this, right? You know exactly what Peter's feeling right now. You've been in church and the sermon's going into overtime and your stomach starts growling and you know that's not a movement of the Holy Spirit. You're just hungry, right? Right? And it takes everything in you to just not shout out, hey, it's time to wrap it up. I, I've, I've got a burger waiting for me at lunchtime. Peter, he, he's so hungry. And then he falls into this trance or he sees this vision. And it's a, it's a vision of a sheet. Think, think about a sailboat, the sail on a sailboat, a giant sail that is uh, dropping down. And on this sheet is all kinds of different animals just roaming about. It's a very bizarre vision. Perhaps this is one of those instances where, you know, you're thinking about something right before you fall asleep, and then you end up having a dream about that person or thing. But in reality, it's so much more. Once again, God is is just placing the, the pieces. He's putting the pieces in place to make his next move. We know that this is more than just uh, Peter's groaning for a lunch because it, it, it says that the sheet is descending from heaven, that the heavens opened up. That phrase, uh, that expression indicates divine revelation. That God is specifically communicating with Peter in the vision. So Peter sees all of these wild beasts, and then all of a sudden this voice from heaven instructs Peter to get up, kill, kill these animals, and eat. Enjoy it. And Peter's offended by this. he's, He's saying, absolutely not, Lord. I've never eaten anything like this before. I've never eaten anything. He says, I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. Now, this is where it may be confusing for for us. Right? I, I, read, I read that and I say, what's the big deal, Peter? You've got this feast in front of you and you're hungry, so why not eat? You know, somebody sit me in front of a smorgasbord and I can tell you that I'm going to have no problem following that command to eat. Us Kazarowskis are actually known for how well we eat. So Peter, why are you so, why are you so offended by this command? Well, this is where we need to understand the context and the culture that Peter lived in, the, the context of Jewish law. Peter, although he was a Christ follower, is still a Jewish man. He was raised learning and following Jewish law. And uh, in the Jewish law that God gave them, there is this concept of clean and unclean. You, you hear those phrases, you hear Peter say that, Lord, I've never eaten anything that is unclean. 
Now, when you read those words in the Bible, clean and unclean, naturally you think that it's pertaining to physical cleanliness. Like your two-year-old goes out and plays in the mud, and when you bring them back in, you say, oh my goodness, you are unclean. You go get in the tub so that we can make you clean, so that you can become clean. But when you read the words clean and unclean in the Bible, that's actually not what it's talking about. Clean and unclean in the Bible is not referring to physical cleanliness, but instead it's actually referring to ritual cleanliness. It's like a a status among the Jewish people before God. And if you go back to the book of Leviticus in the Old Testament, which is a part of the Jewish law, you'll actually find this concept of clean and unclean plays a prominent role. This this idea of clean and unclean is introduced over a hundred times in the book of Leviticus, and there are a wide variety of circumstances that could make a person or an animal or even objects unclean. Generally speaking, if someone was deemed unclean, this meant that they were unfit to participate in the corporate worship of God. They would be temporarily unable to participate in a worship ceremony. If an object or an animal was unclean, it could not be used in the corporate worship of God. And you would have to go through certain rituals or even wait a certain period of time to become clean again. Now with that in mind, you go to Leviticus 11. And the whole chapter is uh, gives this list of dietary guidelines for the Jewish people. There's a whole menu of things that you can and also cannot eat. And if you ate the items that you weren't allowed to eat, you would be declared unclean. Now you may hear that and say, what a silly little thing that is. This doesn't make any sense. Why on earth does this matter, God? Why? uh, What is your purpose in this idea of being clean and unclean? Well, God answers the question in Leviticus 20. Take a look at the uh, verse. He says, I am the Lord your God who has separated you from the peoples. You shall therefore separate the clean beast from the unclean and the unclean bird from the clean. You shall not make yourselves detestable by beast or by bird or by anything with which the ground crawls, which I have set apart for you to hold unclean. You shall be holy to me. For I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. For the little Jewish boy who goes to his father and says, Dad, why? Why do we, why do we only eat certain things? Dad, what's the big deal about being clean and unclean? The father would respond by saying, Well, son, You see, God has chosen us as his special people. We belong to God. 
He has separated us out from the rest of the world to be his special people. And there are things that the world does that God has commanded us not to do because we're different. We're different from the rest of the world. We've been called out of the world. And this is the law that we follow. And this law shows the world that we're different. That we belong to the one true God. That we are God's chosen people, son. The purpose of the food law and the law in general was to make the Israelites distinct from the rest of the world. It was more than just maintaining a specific diet. It was more than just peculiar eating patterns. No, this was a matter of identity. It was to remind them that they are set apart to worship the one true God. And so we come back to Acts chapter 10 and we see how serious of an issue this is for Peter. He's saying, no, I'm not going to eat those animals because that's going to make me unclean. And then I'm not going to be able to properly worship you, God. At this point in Peter's spiritual journey, he's walked with Jesus And he knows that Jesus fulfilled the law and that his worship of God is now different. But this idea of clean and unclean is so ingrained into his head that he's really struggling with this concept. God is asking him to do something different, to do something that's uncomfortable that he's never done before. And from our story in the text, we can just feel how much he's wrestling with this. Right? Think about it. Peter is so pious, so devoutly religious, that he hears a voice from heaven, and he still refuses to eat. This vision happens three times, over and over, as if Peter needs to see it over and over again to see that it's okay. And then even in verse 17, we find that Peter is inwardly perplexed. You get the idea that he is just wrestling with this concept of whether or not he should continue to follow the Jewish law or not. I mean, he is just grappling intensely with this as he considers the vision. And even down to verse 19, as Cornelius' men arrive, the Spirit says to Peter, hey, look, there's three men looking for you. Go ahead and follow them. Join them without hesitation. Almost to say, Peter, there's some guys here, and you may doubt why, why they're here. Because you're grappling with this. You may have reservations about going with them, but it's okay. Why would Peter hesitate to go with these men? Well, because they're Gentiles. So once again, you can see God's hand on the chessboard, moving the pieces uh, to, about to accomplish his will. It's no coincidence that Peter has just had a vision from heaven that challenges his understanding of Jewish law, and now he has three Gentiles knocking on his door, asking him to travel with them to Caesarea, of all places. Unknown to them, their timing is impeccable. Now, in our context, when you go to a foreign country, you tend to follow their 
customs. You adapt to their culture. You eat what they eat. You drink what they drink. When I was in high school, I took a missions trip with our youth group to England for a couple of weeks. And I remember in one of the meetings that we had in preparation for the trip, um, my, my youth pastor explained to us that we would be drinking a lot of tea. One of the students raised their hand and said, well, what if I don't like tea? And my youth pastor looked him straight in the eye and said, you're going to drink the tea whether you like it or not. Because he understood and we understood the value of adapting to their culture. Now for us, tea is merely overcoming a preference. But you could imagine Peter's plight when considering the invitation from these Gentile men. Peter knows that if he goes with these men to Caesarea, it will make him unclean. This is why God's timing is so perfect in this. If Peter had not had that vision and received this command when he did, there's a strong possibility that Peter would have declined the invitation to join them. But we come to verse 23, and as hard as it might have been for Peter, he accompanies them on their journey to Cornelius' house. As he arrives, there's this really strange encounter, right? Peter shows up. It's a house full of people, right? Because Cornelius knows Peter's coming. He invited all of his friends and all of his family to come over to, to hear this guy. And then when Cornelius sees Peter, he actually he bows down to him and worships him. And, and Peter says, hey, no, hold up. I'm just a man. Basically to say, you don't, I'm not the one you need to worship, right? I'm going to tell you about who you need to worship. Just get up. You're making a fool of yourself, Cornelius. You don't need to worship me. And then he begins to speak to the group. And this is where we come to the application. Verse 28, I want you to take a look at it because this is a key verse in this story. Right, right. First, Peter draws attention to how strange of a gathering this is. Right, This is not normal. He's saying, look, you know this. This is unlawful for a Jew like me to associate and visit with Gentiles like you. This just doesn't happen. This is taboo. It's so unusual, in fact, as I've already mentioned, that it took supernatural intervention from God for it to happen. Under no normal circumstances would such a meeting take place unless God intervened and got his hands in on this, right? Peter is saying, hey, my customs and my culture, everything I know and everything I've experienced tells me that what we're doing right now is wrong. But God, who has the authority to determine right from wrong, has told me that this is right. And God has not only allowed for this gathering to take place, but he's actually orchestrated it. He's planned it out. He's set the pieces in place so that we would be here. And then in the second half of verse 28, we arrive at the punchline. The big main idea of this entire passage Peter says, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. 
This is a fascinating conclusion that Peter comes to because remember, the vision was only about food. It was only about the animals. It was the animals that were unclean. But now Peter is broadening his understanding of this vision to go beyond just food, but also to people. God has shown me not to call any person common or unclean. His vision isn't just about food. It's more than just, oh, hey, guess what? You can eat bacon now. Hooray. Right? No. Yes, it gave the Jewish Christians the freedom to eat such things, but there's such a deeper meaning behind the vision. There's such a deeper truth that we would miss if we just left it at the food. Peter says, The truth is that I shouldn't call any person unclean. And once again, remember what it meant to be clean or unclean in the Jewish context. To be clean was to be separated from the world. To be unclean was to be separated from God. For Peter to say that he shouldn't call anyone unclean is a radical paradigm shift in his mind. Because his whole life, he's been told that Jews are separate from the world. They're special, right? But now God is inviting the world to come in and be a part of his special separated people. And what we've seen in Peter through this passage is that he's wrestling with how he views the Gentile world. That's why he refused to eat in the vision. That's why he was inwardly perplexed. That's why he may have had uh, hesitation to visit. Peter has come to grips with his own prejudices against the Gentiles. In verse 28, I read that and say, oh my goodness, there's there's a level of repentance here. Peter is saying, I I didn't associate with you. I never have. But now I need to change my mind. Now I need to look at you differently. Because God has told me not to prejudice against you because of your cultural background. And this passage paves the way for what we'll look at next week. Yes, Peter's wrestling with his prejudice, and yes, he's come to terms with what what he was doing was wrong. But as we even look further, it paves the way for Peter to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with them. The, The greater point in all of this is that the gospel is available to everyone of every culture. Culture, it's it's a wonderful, culture is, is beautiful. It's a tapestry of God's wonderful, unique creation. It, it displays the massive complexity of God, of who God is and what he stands for. And it's wonderful that the gospel transcends culture and transcends cultural boundaries. You see, sometimes we place barriers that shouldn't be there when we think about other cultures. We build human constructs when God says, no, don't let your prejudices get in the way 
of the expansion of my work. If we truly believe that Jesus is Lord of all, then we need to be willing to go to all without reservation. And before we can expect others to change their minds about us as believers and about God, we actually have to change our minds about them. We need to see them the way that God sees them. We must be willing to set aside our prejudices about cultures and countries, nations, and even communities here in the United States that are different than us. We must be willing to set aside our prejudices and adapt to other cultures for the sake of the gospel. This is what Peter talks about in 1 Corinthians 9. Take a look at it. He writes, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became a Jew, as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings." When Paul says that he's all things to all people, it means that he's adapting to their culture as long as it wasn't sinful so that he may have an open door to share the gospel. Imagine trying to tell somebody from another culture about the all-inclusive nature of the gospel, but then rejecting their culture and who they are. It doesn't add up. The two just don't coincide. Too many times we expect people to come to, to on our turf to meet us where we are, to, to adapt to our culture, to follow our rules, to, to follow our procedures. And that would be just fine if Christianity was a come-and-see religion, but it's not. It, it's a go-and-tell religion. Judaism was a come-and-see religion. You want to worship God? Come to Jerusalem. You want to worship God, you've got to come to the temple. But when Jesus came, he reversed the mission. He transitioned from come and see to go and tell. And when we go and tell, we are going to be exposed to other cultures that we must be willing to adapt to, that we must be willing to set our prejudices aside for the sake of the gospel. Because what are we going to tell? The good news of Jesus Christ. Which incidentally, as we come full circle, makes all of this possible for Peter. If you read about Peter's vision, once again, at face value, it seems as though God just decided, well, that's a stupid rule and I'm just going to get rid of it. Right, This passage could make us feel as if God's just making this up as he goes. But let me direct you back to verse 15, and we'll see that that's actually not the case. 
As Peter refuses to eat what he perceives in his mind as unclean, the voice uh, from heaven declares, do not call common or unclean what God has made clean. It's not as if the law never mattered. It's not as if God just magically decided one day to do away with the law because it wasn't working. No, the law was there to shine a mirror on our sin and show us how utterly hopeless we are and how utterly separated we are from God. But when Jesus died on the cross, he fulfilled the law. Those animals became clean because of what Christ did on the cross. He fulfilled the law. If you want to explore it more on your own time, that's Romans 10. That's Galatians 3. That's Ephesians 2. You see, we were, we were unclean, separated from God, and God made us clean through Jesus. Any requirements that God had to approach and worship him, all perfection that he requires was met in the person of Jesus Christ. So now we can say in confidence, come as you are. Come just as you are. You don't need to be anything to approach the Lord of all. You don't need to be from a certain culture to approach God. You don't need to have a certain status or a certain background to approach God. All you need, all you need to do is humble yourself before God and say, Lord, I know that I can't live up to what you require, but I recognize that Jesus met all the requirements necessary. So would you accept me, not on the basis of my own work or my own seemingly self-righteousness, but would you accept me on the basis of Jesus' work and his work alone? And God has promised that if you submit to him in such a way that he will forgive you and he will bring you in, He will separate you from the world no matter where you come from. And he will make you clean. Would you pray with me? Father, as we continue to see the expansion of the gospel in the book of Acts, would we see um, how wonderful this is? Father, I I, I pray... um, that we would understand what you've done on our behalf, Lord. That we would understand that, that, that we can't be good enough. It's impossible to be good enough, Lord. And so we would we rest in your promise that Jesus was good enough for us. We thank you, Lord, for the blank slate, the clean slate that says, come as you are. And I would pray, Lord, that we would have the boldness to go into the nations to proclaim this, and we wouldn't let our own sinful prejudices get in the way. Father, would we set those thoughts aside and become all things to all people for the sake of the gospel. And in your holy name I pray. Amen.